Welcome to the New Era Property and Business Podcast. I'm Rick Gannon and I'm a property investor, trainer and mentor and best-selling author. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors, which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property. That's available on Kindle, it's available on paperback, and it's also available on the Audible store. And welcome back to today's podcast. And we have got an absolutely fantastic guest with us today. Today we are joined with uh, Ranjan Bhattacharya from London. And Ranjan is the host of the Baker Street Property Meet and is also an active property investor and developer focusing in North London and surrounding areas. So Ranjan, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Fantastic. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. And, um, you know, the purpose of today's podcast is really to share your experience and to give some great top tips if you can offer to any new investors. So, Ranjan, over to you, really. What sort of experience do you have in the property world? Oh, dear. Well, I uh, bought my first property in 1990. Uh, I was um, fresh out of university and um, I had bought my first property based on a contract of employment that I had to join uh, my first employer. Um, so I, I joined one of these management consultancy firms, it's now called Accenture, and it was regarded as a very good job and a career. So on the basis of that contract of, of employment, I managed to get a 100% mortgage. Um, and uh, with that, uh, started my property career. <laughs> Wow, so you got 100% mortgage. I mean, I don't think you can do that anymore. Are you? Um, did, did you manage to get out of that mortgage quite quickly, or is it something you were tied into for a long time? Um, <clears throat> no. I mean, at that time, I bought my first... I, I should say I bought my first property with a residential mortgage to live in. Um, and the nature of my job, uh, anyone that knows management consultancy knows that you're kind of sent to where the client site is and you often fly out Monday morning and you fly back Friday and you I had this home but I was only living in it um, for for one night a week um, so basically I thought this is a waste of time having this home let's rent it out um, and within a few months I discovered this was a great idea because the 1990s was a very interesting time for property um, property prices were relatively cheap and the yields were relatively good uh, based on doing very, very simple stuff, based on doing vanilla buy-to-let, no renting out rooms. Um, you could let and forget a property uh, and achieve decent yields, and it would cover the mortgage. Um, so it seemed like a no-brainer to go out and buy another one. And uh, during the early 90s, um, prices were um, falling a little bit. Um, properties took a long time to sell in estate agent windows. Um, and as such, there were a lot of motivated sellers around. And if you could find a motivated seller and offer to do a deal quickly, you would get it at a discount to market value. And for me, that was my insurance policy against short-term falls. 
uh, buy it significantly below market value from a motivated seller. If you're buying 25, 30% below, who cares if it falls 5%? Um, and if you can buy it, cover all your costs, rent it out, generate cash flow, uh, that must be the end game. So I just carried on buying property like that through the uh, 1990s. Um, and then eventually, I mean, I was one of these people because um, I meet a lot of people who come to uh, Baker Street and they tell me they want to get out of the rat race, they're fed up with their jobs and this, that and the other. Um, but I was in a position where I love my job, I love my career, it was a great career to be in. And I stayed in that career for a good 10 years. I quit in 2001. Um, because eventually, no matter how much, as time went on, slowly um, my uh, property income was becoming much more than my salaried income. And it, and it doesn't matter how much you love your job. What happens is that in any job, there's 80% that you love and there's 20% that kind of is a bit of a bind and you kind of have to do, but you put up with. But as your income from other sources increases, the 20% that is a bit of a bind just becomes even more of an irritant. <laughs> and it got to the stage in 2001, I decided, look, jack it in and uh, do this full time. So since 2001 and, and to date, what, what have you achieved? What, what does your portfolio consist of? My portfolio consists of, I think, um, after quitting, it was development. Um, it was because before when I had a demanding job, it was pretty much vanilla buy to let and a little bit of rooms, but no extensive refurbishments because I didn't have the time to manage them. Um, the big differential uh, after 2001 was um, developing um, to let. I've never been a sell-on kind of guy. Um, at first it was simple refurbs, but then it was flat conversions. So um, flats provide best yields in London, um, but if you buy other people's flats, you're stuck with service charges. So my strategy was to buy old buildings, apply for planning permission to extend them as far as I could, and then convert the whole lot into uh, multiple flats, usually four to uh, 15 flats in a building, and keep the whole lot and rent them out. And that way, the yields are good because you control the building and you manage the service charge issue um, and you get great occupancy and all of that because you keep the communal areas nice and that kind of thing. Um, so after that, my strategy was pretty much um, um, developed to let. But the big um, game changer was all the permitted development stuff that came in. Um, that's been absolutely fantastic because planning is a pain in, is a pain. There's no doubt about it. I was going to say something a bit ruder then, <laughs> but it's the right old pain. The great thing with permitted development is that is, is it gives you certainty. As long as you know what you're buying and know what you can do with that property, you know that when you put in your prior approval application, you're going to get, be able to roll ahead with your, uh, development and, uh, no one can interfere with it. And that's been fantastic in terms of providing certainty to your pipeline and um, the projects that you do and the end results that you get. So when you say um, permitted development, just for ease of the listeners, uh, you're talking from commercial to residential? Yes. Yeah. Um, the first permitted development I really got my teeth into was the um, making space above shops uh, into residential. So um, the PD introduced in 2013 allowed you to make two flats above a shop 
um, under PD um, and also allowed you to um, extend the shop to the rear and also make um, um, parts of a shop or a full shop into residential um, pending certain criteria. Uh, and then, of course, office to residential and uh, that kind of thing a little bit later on. And what does, uh, how does that affect your strategy moving forwards, Ranjan? Do you think that this is something that is going to be secure and you're going to be able to do for you know, quite a long time? Or do you think it might be something that eventually the government will take a stance on? Um, the government doesn't seem to have taken a stance on it. It's more, it's more that um, um, the opportunities are getting thinner on the ground, particularly with office to residential conversion, where um, a office building is situated in an area where there's strong residential demand. Um, the prices for that stock are very, very high at the moment, uh, um, almost too much in many areas. Um, I think there are a lot of mistakes that people are, are making. Um, when people buy office buildings, um, they're not really, um, particularly when they're, when they're doing it with just residential experience, they're not understanding uh, what office buildings are all about. Mm. And I'll just give you a little example of that, is I see a lot of office buildings which, are, which languish on the market for several months. And, um, you know, they're not bad buildings on the face of it. But when you actually look into the detail, and get something done like an asbestos survey, you find that it's so riddled with asbestos, the cost of removing that would add so much to the project that it's simply not viable to do a proper conversion. And, and I think there are plenty of things like that that trip a lot of people up. Mm. I think yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? And you're absolutely right. The, the hidden things that people potentially don't, don't look into... Um, you know, with CDM regs and things like that. I mean, I get asked a lot, Ranjan, so questions about development, developing buildings, and people will say to me, what's the ballpark figure to convert a, a property into a five-bed HMO? And I always go back and say, you know what, there is no ballpark figure, and it's very difficult unless you've got the experience. If somebody came to you and asked the same question for the example you just gave, you know, a, a shop to convert the upstairs into two flats. What kind of answer would you be able to give them? Um, I'd give them the same as you, as you yeah. gave. But I think um, I would just say that I'm not a builder. Um, I don't make my, I don't make, I, w I would not be able to make money from building a project out that already has planning permission. Um, I would not make enough. Um, I make my money when I buy and from planning gain. And I often probably um, uh, don't actually budget too much on the building cost. I mean, it's quite an admission to make. But if you have bought exceptionally well and you have made great planning gain, my priority is, get the, is to get the property developed as quickly as possible, get my finances paid off and get the property rented. And to do that development in that way, I often have to pay, and I accept that I'm paying a little bit of a premium uh, to pay for the project management and the fast delivery timescales um, to get the project just done and dusted. Um, if I if I try to save too much on getting cheap builders or cheap materials or or cheap anything, it adds cost in terms of delay 
um, which you end up paying for if you're financing it and all the rest of it. So I am less focused. Uh, it's quite an admission to make, really. I'm less focused on the development cost. I'm more focused on making sure I buy well and make significant chunk from buying discount to market value mm-hmm. and making planning gain that the development, the actual development cost is not a big deal for the whole development. Yeah. There's significant contingency in there. And, and I think that that's the safe way for a developer to operate. Otherwise, you're a builder. Absolutely. I think that's a great answer, you know, and I think it's like anything we do in property. You make your money when you buy it. And if you buy it at the right price, then everything falls into place. Ranjan, what are you working on at the moment? Have you got anything current? Have I got anything current? At the moment, I've been doing, I mean, we've done a couple of um, um, office purchases because these days I'm looking much more at commercial property um, than residential property um as as for, for for long-term sort of rental and the like um but this year uh, particularly in the last six months has been the process of uh, incorporation um i started my property career buying a lot of things in individual names only in the last decade or so have we been doing things in limited companies but all the stuff that we have bought long time ago was in personal names and that has needed a little bit of uh, restructuring, if you like, to um, to move all that into uh, corporate vehicles um, in preparation for um, uh, fun times in the years ahead. Mm, absolutely, and it is about planning for the future, isn't it? And again, for you know, for any new investors that are listening to the podcast, we always say start with the end in mind. Make sure that you get um, some, you know, the correct tax advice before you start your business and before you incorporate. Make sure you get the right SIT code absolutely. and everything that comes with it because it can come back to bite you. I think just to add on that, I mean, it's a question I get asked in, in, uh, quite a lot in, at uh, Baker Street Property Meet and all of that. People ask me what am I working on right now and all of that. And I feel a little bit shy saying, that, um, well, I'm not actually doing a development project right now because in most parts of my life, I've had at least four or five development projects on the go at any one time. And really this year, apart from one office building we bought at the beginning of the year, um, we haven't been doing anything current. But there comes a a time um, which should happen periodically in your career where you take stock um, you've got to look at what you've got and it's not just incorporation um, but it's looking at the entire business and the processes that we have and the systems that we have and uh, modernizing them and streamlining them and uh, making them fit for purpose because we all grow I mean when I started my business I started with a spreadsheet and just created a tab per property you know it doesn't take long before you grow out of that and you start um, taking on various sort of um, uh, property management systems and all of that and there comes a time when those systems uh, become unfit for purpose but the bigger the business gets the more time you have to take out if you like to take stock and um, and, and and just to reinvigorate the whole setup that you have uh, to make it fit for purpose going ahead um, and that for me that's been a very very useful uh, very very useful exercise absolutely uh, I've, I couldn't agree more um, you know it's sometimes we get tied up with the day to day running of the business the day to day looking at the growth and, <laughs> and, and everything else in the background sort of um, you know you need to you need to take stock you need to you know pull back from it and, and have a holistic approach and, um, and, and to look how you can move forward so I, I've done that myself as well I think we went through a phase of um, about 12 months very recently doing something very similar and then planning 
again for acquisition moving on into um, t- 2018. Ranjan, do you ever buy property at auction? Um, several, yes. I'm a big fan of auction purchases, actually, yes. And sometimes, again, you know, questions that are asked are on what advice could you give to a first-time um, property investor at an auction? What would you say to that? Um, first time, I would go to an auction um, uh, when you're not actually looking to buy a property uh, to see exactly what happens. Um, and I would also do the same thing as, I mean, years ago, I invested in the stock market and uh, someone gave me some advice. Um, play it virtually at first. You know, pick seven or eight stocks that you would invest in um, and uh, just come up with a little spreadsheet and see how you do after six months. Um, and I'd advise a similar thing with property. So um, go to a couple of auctions, um, get a feel for what actually happens and what the process is. Um, look at a couple of lots that you are interested in, which are in your area. Actually go and see the properties on one of the viewing days, get download the legal packs, and actually go to the auction and see what they go for. Um, and then and then, what I used to do um, when I started with auctions is not just that, but I'd find out who bid for them um, and actually go and have a chat to them. Uh, find out what they're doing with it, um, and even go down a few weeks later. I mean, I'd I'd actually um, see a property go up for sale at auction. You know, a few weeks later, once it's completed, there'd be skips outside, and I just knock on the door and, and have a chat and uh, find out what's going on. Um, you learn a huge amount um, by just shadowing and finding out what the angles and opportunities are and why people are buying. I mean, the the thing that's impossible with auctions is to buy vanilla stuff. Vanilla stuff is going to go to owner-occupiers, and owner-occupiers only have to get a 5, 5% or so discount to market value to get a decent deal. For investors and developers, what they're looking for auctions at auctions for are um, – angles and, and opportunities that aren't entirely obvious, um, things that you can exploit for planning gain and the like, um, things where uh, there's considerable fat left on the table, which is not of interest to an owner-occupier um, or a sort of vanilla yield investor. And those are the deals that make um, sort of great opportunities. If I can um, just mention something, we do a, a free... Um, networking event which we host in conjunction with auction house london and uh, we call it the property coffee morning and um, it's hosted it, we host it on the morning of the auction house london sales it's in central london uh, the website is property property and it's free you, know, you get a cup of coffee and uh, we talk about auctions and auction strategies and people often come along come to that networking event and then stay for a little bit of the auction. And it's a good way of leading people into the, um, the auction process. It sounds like a really good resource. Could you just say the, uh, the name of the website again for us, Ranjan, so for those that are interested? Yeah, it's propertycoffeemorning.com. Um, we do it on the dates of the Auction House London sale. Um, and basically, we do the networking event in the morning and Auction House London do the sale in the uh, starting at 12 noon. And um, it takes place at the Marriott Hotel, Swiss Cottage, but details are available on their website. 
Fantastic. Sounds like a great resource. And you know what? Whilst we're on the subject of networking and um, sort of education and things like that, um, you know, there are loads of strategies out there. There are serviced accommodation, there's HMO, there's title splitting, there's commercial to residential, commercial developments, and so much more. Um, so I've got sort of a, a double-edged question, Ranjan, for you. Do you think that it's possible for people with no experience in property to be able to go out and start a property career without having invested in some form of education? Um, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult. Um, I think the days of the um, suck it and see approach of sort of diving in and, and seeing what happens um, are pretty much over um, and I think that's two reasons for that. I think partly it, there's regulation and the um, and and the and the new tax regime um, that's that's brought that into focus. But also because of the stage of the property market cycle that we're going into. Um, remember the um, Sarah Beanie's property ladder, mm. and uh, you'd have watched it in 2007, where um, you know I, I mean I've actually worked as a um, an advisor to the researchers of that program, and I know that they go out and find they actually look for um, uh, people that let's say um, people that would make great television, um, and they they're not necessarily uh, best. Um, at finding great deals. And, you know, you've seen that program in 2007 and they will have found these people and they'd have done, made every mistake possible. They don't listen a word of what Sarah says. And then at the end of the show, they say, um, yeah, the guy made a profit. Um, but it was never because of the actions they took. It was because they rode the crest of the wave of the property market cycle at that time. Mm. Now, we are entering a different phase of the market cycle. Into 2018 and going on for the next three or four years, it is going to be, there is going to be no rising market to get you out of jail, to cover up your mistakes, to allow you to learn by trial and error. Um, if you make error, you will simply make a loss. It's just that phase of the market cycle. Um, so for that reason, and because of the regulatory issues and the tax issues, and it's just become a bit more complicated now, uh, education is far more key than it was, say, when I started. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, whilst we're on the education side of things, um, I know that you are the host of Baker Street Property Meet, um, which is a, a massive networking meeting. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and, and how it can help people? Um, yes, I started it in... Um, uh, beginning of 2016 um, because I really recognized I mean I've been as you may know I've been doing um, training and education since uh, 2003 and I ran a mentorship program and stuff like that and I and I, um, I, I, I came out of that space in about 2008 um, really because the credit crunch came in and um, London became an open goal opportunity for uh, property really fantastic property development opportunities and i um uh, since 2008 2009 i focused pretty much on um, investing and developing but then in in 2015 16 particularly after all this george osborne uh, tax changes and all of that i was starting to get an increasing amount of emails from people who had 
been on training with me in the years gone by and just asking me what my thoughts were and uh, on, on all these changes and what they should do with their existing portfolios and that kind of thing, which is when I started um, um, doing a few talks on the subject. And then I thought, uh, well, let's put forward, let's put up a little um, networking group, a networking meeting, um, which is uh, not a rah-rah, everything is great kind of group, which is a real group which looks at the challenges that the property industry faces right now and more importantly how to overcome them there isn't a challenge out there that isn't overcomable there isn't a workaround uh, there isn't a work there isn't any problem that exists today that there isn't a workaround for people who want to make money or to want to profit from property or to want to change their lives from property to do so the thing that's changed is that what worked for people a few years ago ain't working anymore. So people were confused. They were saying, well, I can't rinse and repeat the strategies that I've learned years ago. Um, many people, I mean, I wrote a book back in 2005. We sold more than 15,000 copies over the internet. And um, a lot of my readers were, were saying, you know, well, basically, I mean, the a lot of the principles of investing that I wrote about in that book um, won't work today. It's just a completely different market. Yeah. So a lot of people were ask, asking, well, you know, okay, what now? Um, they're established, they're experienced investors, they've done well out of it, but what next? Um, so the group is really about, we've grown now, we're the largest network, monthly networking group in the UK. We have about 230 people at each meet, and every month we tackle... Um, um, issues and solutions for today's market. Um, because we have so many people come to each event, we manage to get the most interesting speakers to come along and speak at our events. And it's just become a um, um, a place where you can go for um, positivity, but not rara positivity, but solutions, if you like. And, and that's what I think is different. With that, about Ranjan, it. How can people come along to it? Um, BakerStreetPropertyMeet.com. Oh, when is this pod, pod start cast going out? Uh, this will be going out in January. Blood, I, I, I'll mention a little bit about our January meeting as an example. Um, our first meeting of the year, I mean, BakerStreetPropertyMeet.com is the website. For our first meeting of the year, we have the um, annual Property Investor Awards in December. And um, um, the award ceremony is, is great. It's, it's a recognition of excellence in uh, the property investing community. So they're, they're in categories for best HMO of the year, best um, service accommodation, best new deal, best development deal, that kind of thing. But at the award ceremony, it's a black tie affair. 500 people turn up. It's uh, People get presented their awards. They thank their mum and a um, big round of applause and go off stage. So at the first Baker Street, 31st of Jan, um, 2018. We're bringing all the award winners to Baker Street and um, they're going to share with us, um, we're going to find out a little bit about what makes them winners and uh, the deals that they did in today's market which won them the award. And that's pretty much the ethos of Baker Street is to fill people with inspiration, fill people with ideas and possibilities of what real people are doing in today's property market. Not five years ago, ten years ago, dining out on old stories, mm. but what's working today um and that is proving to be a very very popular uh, event so it sounds like an absolutely amazing event um you know 250 people 
talking about property and networking together. So we're on the subject of networking, and this is a question that comes up quite a lot when we talk to new investors um, more so, that they don't like networking, they're not that kind of person and to go to a you know a room full of 250 people that they've not met before it might sort of make them feel a little bit anxious what advice could you give to people that are feeling like that about networking um well it's easy to, i guess it's very easy to say you know no one's going to buy go up and shake someone's hand talk to some people um but one thing we do at the uh, baker street property meet is we believe in meet and greet and uh, everyone who comes who is new to the event is is we have a crew of um there are around 25 people who um are uh, basically baker street crew at each event um so we have a crewing policy of having one crew member for every 10 um people that come to the event and our crew people are just volunteers they're property people like you and me who just want to be a part of the event and making it a success and um we believe in meet and greet um so everyone that's new to the event is is specifically met by one of our meet and greeters uh, we find out what the people are interested in and make sure we introduce them immediately to some regulars um who are interested in a similar um uh, kind of thing so yes it's very easy to say go up and shake someone's hand no one's going to bite but we kind of at our networking event we kind of take it to the next level if you like and just making it a little bit easier for first timers to come and connect with some people and get some conversations happening when there are 250 people in a room you're never going to get around all of them but the thing is what you know is that there's some interesting people that turn up um, and even if you meet 10 or so interesting people that night, um, that's still uh, still good. Absolutely. Now, I, I find that um, uh, my rule of thumb is this, um, and this has been the case uh, ever since I've got into networking, which was pretty much in two th- – when I left the corporate career, I had no network in property. So in 2001, I started trying to form a network in property. But my figures are this. Um, meet 100 people shake 100 hands, get to know 100 people, and you'll find one person out of that 100 who will help you take your business forward because you're doing some kind of JV or something together. Absolutely. But if you don't meet that 100, you're not going to get that one. You're not, and you're never going to be in that room with those people ever again in your entire life. And it's really interesting you say that. I'm an ex-police officer, and you know, I was, um, my family were police officers, and we are in the police told to, uh, it's called the ABC of policing, it's assume nothing, believe no one, and check everything. And that kind of stayed with me for, you know, for a certain period of time when I left the police as well. And I remember my first ever networking event, I was dragged along there. I didn't want to go. I couldn't think of anything I would less rather have done that night. And I sat there um, as my, because my wife's really chatty. She was out there mingling with everybody. And I was looking, thinking, I've got no interest in any of these people. I don't even know who they are. Then eventually, as they started to talk to me, I started to realize, actually, this is really powerful. And moving on from there, I think 
think we established our very first power team just from networking. And that led to our last deal. Uh, we, we bought a 1.1 million pound block of flats very recently. And that was with a joint venture partner that we met at one of those networking events. So, you know, I can't stress it enough that networking is so powerful. And especially if you're going to treat your business as a real business and you want to make it work, then you've got to get out there, folks, and you've got to network. Ranjan, what do you think the strongest strategies are going to be moving forward into 2018? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think, um, I think it's. Uh, I, I mentioned before. I touched on this before about the cycles, and um, I really see us moving into a new phase of the property market cycle. And there are different strategies that work best in different phases of the cycle. And when um, the market softens, when property takes a little bit longer to sell. Um, that's the time to dust off all the um, direct-to-vendor marketing strategies um, because uh, people become when, – when properties sell in two days through an estate agent, a motivated seller can sell at full market value through regular channels. Um, when properties take a little bit longer to sell, that's when uh, direct-to-vendor marketing strategies come into their own. And when you can, when you when you get directly in front of the vendor, that's when you can have much more success with creative strategies as well, options and the like. Um, so I think uh, 2018 is going to be um, the year um, when uh, direct-to-vendor marketing strategies. Uh, in a way to source below market value properties from motivated sellers um, starts to pay much more dividends than it than it has done uh, when the part market was peaking. I agree. I couldn't agree more. You know, and it is a great strategy. So, in terms of what you're going to do for 2018, have you got any particular plans? Um, yes, I mean, I'm 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 focusing much more on commercial properties these days, and I think the uh, it's still um, direct vendor. Um, uh, marketing with those, which tends to be more by um, letter writing campaigns. Um, we're just putting in systems at the moment um, with the aim of sending out a thousand letters every quarter. Um, obviously, not we're not doing them um, every quarter on one day, but sending out a certain number every week so that they total a thousand letters. Because if you send them all out at the same time, you can't. It's difficult to do the follow-up from the responses that you get. Mm. Um, so um, it's direct vendor marketing. Um, for people that own freeholds of uh, commercial properties, mixed-use properties and the like. Um, and also um, multi-unit freeholds as well, um, which I'm including in in the, uh, the commercial categories. We're talking a little bit about sort of income and, and you know, when we, we do these podcasts, we interview quite a lot of property investors and we talk about passive income. What's your thoughts on, on passive income? Is it, is it possible to have a, a passive income from property? Um, I pass. I mean, I'll tell you why. Because I, I never got into this because I wanted passive income. I, I love property. I love developing property. I love finding deals. I love acquiring them, putting together, putting them together, working with other people to put them together. Um, uh, I love the property business, and the property business is not passive. No business is passive. Um, the concept of um, sort of sitting on a beach while, while while everything happens for you and you do nothing, I don't. I'm not really convinced that's a business. Um, so I, I I I'm not sure. 
Um, but let me be a bit more specific, I guess, and I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about why I've gone into commercial property, um, is that uh, residential property, managing residential property um, is not passive. Um, managing commercial property is more passive than residential property. Um, what I find is that, and this is something which all businesses will have to, all property businesses will have to think about sooner or later. The more units you manage, um, residential units, the more people you need uh, on your team to manage those residential units. Um, now, I find that um, um, with commercial, with the same number of commercial units producing the same number of, re- of rental cash flow and sort of total rental uh, income, if you like, um, you need much fewer people to manage the same um, rental cash flow with commercial than you do with residential. There's just a lot less work involved. Um, And since I, I don't really want to grow a massive team in terms of the property management of residential space, um, commercial seems... Um, uh, a far more efficient use of manpower at our end in terms of managing those things. But the other thing I see is, and what I'm increasingly worried about over the years, is that, uh, and I've been talking about this for the last 10 years, as more, as, as, as when Margaret Thatcher was in power, she was talking about the home-owning democracy, and we have, were a majority home-owning nation. Now that's shifting over time. Um, more people are renting, and then, therefore, more renters are voters. So more politicians are catering for the interests of renters. And that's not good for people renting out residential property. You know, and particularly if there's a change of government and Corbyn comes in and all of that, um, there'll be plenty more um, policies which do not favor landlords of residential properties. Now, all the commercial properties I let out, they're let out under the 1954 Rent Act. Let me just say that again. 1954 was before I was born. The rules governing letting of commercial property haven't changed that much. The rules governing renting of residential property changes every other week. Mm. Um, And I don't see um, um, a Corbyn government getting that excited about protecting the interests of business commercial tenants. I mean, I think it's difficult in the private rental sector. And I think landlords and private landlords, landladies, they do get a bad rap. And I think, you know, um, on every newspaper almost, you see uh, horror stories of um, rogue landlords doing this or fat cat landlords doing that. Um, I've got my own personal um, you know, view on, on, on what you know, landlords uh, should be portrayed like. I mean, why do you think the private rental sector just gets castigated what seems to be on a weekly basis? Oh dear! Um, I think um, um, I think we are the new whipping boys. I mean, after the bankers and estate agents, we are the new whipping boys. Um, and I think the the reason is we have no lobby group. Um, we have no. We don't have the ear of Parliament. We have no effective lobbying. Uh, we have no effective representation in the media. Um, and we, as a group, allow other people to set the agenda. Um, and that's why we are the whipping boys. And the people that do put up, put their heads above the parapet, often um, don't um, shine 
um, ray of sort of uh, light or glory on the industry. I mean, there was a guy on Question Time, I, I understand, a couple of days ago. I saw that. Uh, who made an absolute <laughs> fool of himself and didn't yeah. really represent us very well. I there, saw that. There are plenty of people that crop up on TV and show off their big houses and cars and things. And, and you know, I mean, I, 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 but I, I think um, there, there, there is an organized lobby group which are scapegoating us because we don't have a lobby to fight for our cause. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff that's being said um, with agendas that are um, particularly um, untrue. And I know a lot of local authorities are um, playing some very funny games. I mean, I wouldn't mention any names, of course, but there was a recent story in the newspaper about um, two doctors um, who were who were found to have um, um, basically um, uh, rented their home out to masses numbers of people, and they sh- on the front page of the newspaper they showed a picture of the of the two doctors outside their home and how shock horror it was and all of that, and all the vile comments came in afterwards. This was released by the council um, as a press release. What they failed to mention was that the doctors uh, were innocent victims of a rent to rent scam. Someone had rented their property. They'd paid them the rent every month. Um, they had no reason to believe that there was anything untoward going on in that property. Um, yet their name um, and reputation mm. uh, had been just trashed yeah. in the national press. And, and they're actually taking the, the local authority in question to court. Uh, for that for, for that particular issue um, so there, there are plenty of cases like this and there there's various um, uh, there's some national charities that um, that work with uh, homeless folks who, who seem to have fixed political agendas um, which are aligned against um, sort of sort of I mean I think we're not addressing the problem the problem is that you can't build. Yeah. It is such a pain to build. Um, and we always attack the wrong issues. Um, like the latest attack is land banking. Um, you must have heard these stories about how evil developers are land banking and they're, they're not building on what they've got. Well, um, I've run a relatively small property developing business. Um, and when you are doing three or four developments in one in one go um, you have to have a pipeline because you've got people you've got crew to put from one project to another if uh, if i've got 10 planning permissions i can't physically develop them all out at the same time because i haven't got the crew i haven't got the funding and i haven't got the span of control to do it all right so i'll tee them up you know mm. as soon as this one is nearing completion as the finishing guys are going in you know the the starting guys are going in and starting the next one and you stagger the start and you have a nice sort of um, project plan of what you're going to c- cover for the next 2 years so i can only imagine that big developers who are building hundreds of houses and fields and stuff like that have a similar type of issue mm. where they can't build every planning permission they've got today they have to stage them and stagger them um simply because of manpower of span of control of of um project management of financing and all those sort of issues you know and and i don't think anyone with a with half a brain has actually looked into uh, things like this land banking thing and figured out why 
as what the reasons are that as soon as you get a planning permission why you don't build mm. the other thing i've noticed is that when i got my first planning permission for a flat conversion this would have been in 2002 um you get your planning permission and there are conditions that the local authority give you and um, my conditions used to be just one just two i think i mean um do it within start the works within three years and um and sometimes it might restrict me on time of day that i can work or something like that these days you get a planning permission and the bigger the project the more conditions there are attached to it even for a small development of nine ten units you will have 20 planning conditions that all have to be discharged before the start of the project and those take time and money to do absolutely so, it's not, you know, for for want of trying that, that projects are just left um, yeah, yeah. languishing um, and not being built on. And I know there are, there are lots of hurdles that we need to do in, well, I suppose in every walk of life and certainly more so now in property, um, legislation, regulation, you know, and you're right, it changes almost now what feels like on a weekly basis ranjan you've got an absolute wealth of of knowledge um you know you are you're very focused you're very motivated if the listeners of today's podcast want to reach out to you personally how can they do that um just go to bakerstreetpropertymeet.com um contact details are all there i'm doing a little blog on there now as well and um uh, there are loads of videos on there as well Fantastic. So bakerstreetpropertymeet.com. Ranjan, last question to you today. Are you a cat or a dog person? <laughs> Do you mean in terms of pets? In terms of pets, indeed. <laughs> not, not, like, not that you can take to one of your properties, but are you, would you prefer cats or dogs? I like little puppies, I think. <laughs> you like little puppies. Do you have any pets? Not yet, no. Not yet. So you are a dogman. So you heard it here first, folks. Ranjan is a dogman. Ranjan, it's been an absolute pleasure today to interview you, and I thank you so much for giving up your time. We've got loads and loads of knowledge on there. And uh, once again, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors, which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property. That's available on kindle it's available on paperback and it's also available on the audible store